0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. Across the globe, every culture has their own idea of happiness, beauty, and perfection, some of which may
1: surprise us. For cultural observer Pico Ayer, Iran is one such place. I love the beauty of the Islamic tradition. I mean, the cry of the muezzin just goes right through me. And to step into a mosque and see a hundred people lifting as one their hands to the heavens as a sign of of surrender and devotion. And later, how travel reveals how much we actually don't know and will never truly understand. Those really piercing, poignant moments are also ones we can't explain to ourselves. And that's why I call this book the half-known life, because I think our lives are determined almost entirely by things we can't put words to and and can't begin to explain. From Iran to Japan, India, and Kashmir, traveler Pico Iyer's philosophical and
0: spiritual journey in search of paradise, that's coming up on Life Examined. As we begin another year, many of us will be sitting down and planning where we'd like to explore. Whether it's an exotic bucket list trip or something more modest and closer to home, We can only truly experience the majesty of Yosemite or the Grand Canyon or the sounds and smells of India or the Middle East firsthand. As Rolf Potts said in our program last week, travel reveals how the world is and how the world works. So what can we learn about beauty and happiness from other peoples and cultures? And why do we have such a fixed version of paradise despite the ever-changing world around us? The search and meaning of paradise has been a lifelong curiosity for travel writer Pico Iyer. Whether in the mosque in Isfahan, a temple in Kyoto, or in the city of Aranasi, he sees paradise in devotion and tranquility, and also in chaos and death. In his latest book, The Half-Known Life, In Search of Paradise... Pico Iyer draws on his 48 years of continuous travel to explore the concept of paradise and why we shouldn't look too far for a notion of paradise that may not exist. Well, Pico Iyer, welcome back to Life Examined. It's great to have you for the full hour.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. I'm always just so delighted to get the chance to talk to you again. Well, this,
0: this book really has stuck with me, and I've spent the last few weeks with it, and um, it, the theme that seems to keep circling through, that you keep circling around, is that of paradise. I mean, the book Half Known Life, In Search of Paradise. But for you, I'm curious where this fascination with paradise comes from. Was it something you were always interested in, even when you were a young child, or something that is perhaps more um, of, of interest now in a different part of your life?
1: Well, I like what you say about a different part of uh, my life, because after I completed the book, I realized that the first chapter of my first book, Video Night in Kathmandu, which I wrote 36 years ago, was about paradise. Mm. And the first essay I ever wrote for Time magazine that same year, 1986, was about paradise. But... Uh, I think this book really came out of the pandemic. And with me passing through the autumn of my life, of course, Mm. I have a very different perspective than when I was in my 20s. And so I really used the time of sitting at home in Santa Barbara, not far from where you are sitting, to look back on my 48 years of constant travel and in that light to try to think about what paradise really meant, given that, as you know, I'd been lucky enough to visit many places that are seeming paradises, but Mm. deep down, which is the place that uh, is going to bring us contentment? Well, when I read
0: this, it it felt very much like a collection of your favorite places. And, And I may have this wrong, but I remember I once asked you, if one could travel anywhere in the world, where would they go? And, and you gave me a collection of countries that always stuck with me. And, and tell me if I'm off here, but it, they included Iran, I believe India, Japan, as well as um, Vietnam as well. Do I have that list
1: somewhat correct? Yeah, very correct, Jonathan. Um, the the three places I usually mention are almost exactly the ones you cited, Iran, Cuba and Vietnam. Yeah, and of course, right. Japan is the place I've chosen to live for 35 years, so the closest to my heart. But absolutely right. The place, the, the richest, uh, most surprising and most sophisticated place I've ever been was Iran. Yeah. And I do begin the book with Iran. But as you can see, I begin the book with Iran mostly because... It's the birthplace of the notion of paradise. Our word for paradise comes from the old Persian word. And Iran, more than anywhere I've been, has recreated visions of an earthly paradise. Uh, I might have told you before how I remember stepping out into a, a garden hotel in the desert city of Yazd. Mm. Uh, At night, a warm, fragrant night, twinkling lights all around, um, sweet music. I was invited to stretch out on a divan. Uh, Waiters brought me cups of tea and slices of watermelon, elegant couples chattering in the near darkness. And I really thought, now I understand why it's always been said that Iran is the spiritual home of paradise and that they've created these bewitching earthly gardens that are everything the sensory person could ever want. Hmm. I also was really lucky
0: to travel through Iran for about two weeks and I think the strangest thing about being in that country is that it is a place that's filled of such profound history and beauty and yet to travel in it is almost to be a caged animal led around by national tour guides in which you are almost able to see none of the wonders of the country and yet I love in your stories how you are always finding the moments to sneak away to find the moments of quiet and to connect with people on a richer level.
1: Well, I'm so glad that, that you, you're the rare friend of mine who does know Iran firsthand and, and know about that history and culture. But you're right, the very first night I was there, stri- straight off the plane from Santa Barbara, really, I, I, did, I sent my official guide off to dinner, right. and I slipped down to the taxi desk in the lobby of the hotel. And uh, they found me this very young, friendly driver with surprisingly good English who was ready to drive me into the heart of, of the city. And from that moment on, everything that transpired was so surprising I couldn't begin to make sense of it. Mm. Could you tell us that story? What did you find that night? Well, the first thing, we, so we took off into the dark and you may have experienced this too in Iran, but I found all, this, all the streets were strung with fairy lights and all the buildings were illuminated in sapphire and emerald hues. And it turned out I'd arrived on the most festive week of the year in the holy city of Mashhad because it was the birthday of the saint uh, who had been dead almost 1,200 years but is buried in the central shrine. And so we arrived at that central shrine, which is the largest mosque in the world and is really seven interlocking gorgeous marble courtyards and we could barely walk everywhere there were people seated on the ground sharing sweet meats Mm. releasing doves into the blue black sky stretched out to sleep because the pilgrims five million pilgrims had come for the occasion and many of them were sleeping for seven days and seven nights in the mosque and around them were these big video screens uh, on which ayatollahs were delivering uh, sermons and we came to the innermost sanctum where the saint is buried. And this young driver saw that I'd come all this way to learn about his culture. So he invited me in. And It's a very jam-packed space, and we quickly got separated. And at one point, I looked across the room, and um, he had his hand on his heart, and he was walking backwards, so he would never present his back to the long-dead saint. And I noticed that there were tears welling in his eyes. He really just seemed the picture of Islamic piety. But 10 minutes later, when we were back out on the street, walking to his car, he told me that his wife was a blonde English woman who was waiting for him in England and um, expecting their first child. And then he told me um, that he had paid a human trafficker $2,500 to smuggle him into England uh, in the back of a truck breathing through a tube so he would never be detected. And then he told me that the British government had very magnanimously given him a a lawyer and a translator and they'd worked for three years to win him asylum status in Britain. So he'd, he'd risked his life to steal out of Iran And now he was risking his life every summer to steal back into Iran uh, to see the mother and the mosque and the hometown that he missed so much. And when he dropped me off at the hotel at the end of that night, I thought to myself... My goodness, Iran has been on our front pages every day for the last many months. But I couldn't remember ever hearing about a dissident stealing back into the country he'd fled from. And I couldn't remember ever hearing about a very faithful Islamic soul like my new friend who didn't want to live in this Islamic republic. So it was really humbling. And one reason... The book is called The Half-Known Life, was just my sense that we know so little about the world um, in this age of information. I actually had uh, financed my first book 35 years ago with a 20-page article for the Smithsonian on Iranian history. And then I devoted four years of my life to researching everything I could get about Iran to publish a novel partly set there, though I'd never been myself. And yet, as you can tell, within 24 hours, I had learned more than from four years of research. Mm.
0: I love that story. And as you said, that begins the book and it draws you right in. And... I wonder if you can say more about what perhaps this driver was feeling or experiencing in the Islamic tradition. There, what's your sense of it? Of course, we can't ever step into his mind, but certainly there's some some very rich devotional aspect to the Islamic tradition, into the sense of beauty and paradise. What do you think is happening?
1: Yes, I, I love what you said about the beauty of the Islamic tradition. I mean, the cry of the muezzin just goes right through me and to step into a mosque and see a hundred people lifting as one their hands to the heavens as a sign of, of, of surrender and devotion. Some of the most moving moments in my life, in fact, have come in Iranian mosques in Damascus and across the Middle East. So yes, with this driver, when we came out and he dropped me back at the hotel, he said my heart was going boing, boing, boing when I stepped into the shrine. I'm so He was so grateful to me for giving him an excuse to go to the shrine, which otherwise maybe he wouldn't have visited so often uh, were he not bringing it a tourist there. And yet, uh, he had chosen to leave this mm-hmm. country for a, a very secular foreign country, England. So I suppose it speaks for that divide between private devotion, which was so intense in him, and public religion, which is so strong in Iran, he had fled it. And I think, you know, as you know, one of the reasons I start the book in Iran is, as I say, the, the Citizens individually have created these beautiful paradises in gardens and behind closed doors, (laughs) but the government has a very fixed sense Mm. of what paradise is and, um, in fact, say that the fast-track entry to paradise is reserved for martyrs. The, the place called Zahra's Paradise in Iran is the large, one of the largest cemeteries in the world with 1.5 million bodies. So you have a clash between the official notion of paradise and the private notion of paradise. And meanwhile, both the government clerics and the individuals are often citing uh, the great Sufis like Rumi, who know that paradise is within, and who will say that one leaf is worth more than all of paradise if you uh, can see heaven inside mm. that that leaf? So there's this kind of tangled competition between different paradises, almost everywhere you look in Iran, you, you probably found that when, when you were traveling there. Oh, yeah. Well,
0: I think one of the most profound aesthetic experiences I ever had was in the holy city of Isfahan, which you talk about, and standing in some of the turquoise mosques. And I, I remember just being in a moment of, of pure awe, one that is almost beyond words. And the the exquisite detail, the patterning, the color... The music uh, ever, there is something just bewitching about the culture and, and and kind of sweeps you into what feels like an otherworldly place
1: exactly exactly it 's absolute transport and uh, transcendence of oneself and that 's why ever since a little boy I, I was a little boy i 'd been fascinated by Iran drawn by its poems, uh, pictures of the blue-tiled mosques I'd seen, its its carpets. And that's why I published a, a novel that goes back and forth between uh, Santa Barbara, in fact, and mm. the Islamic world, including Iran, called uh, Abandon. And I loved what you said just now about being beyond words because, of course, I learned in my research that some of the calligraphy, the exquisite calligraphy in those mosques is written so quickly that nobody can read it. Mm. It's about getting rid of your... your words your ideas and surrendering to something that we can't begin to put a name to and um, you know one of the other things that I'm glad that you and I can say, having been there, is that we always hear about one aspect of Iran, which is the authoritarian uh, leadership at the moment. And we forget, as you mentioned, the really rich culture and the fact that, to me, it's probably the most refined aesthetic place I've ever been. I love Japan for the intricacy of um, the spaces here, but I would say that Iran may be even more um, subtle and nuanced and Mm. layered. Talk to me a little bit
0: about, I think, this, this notion of paradise that we each have or that we're each interested in exploring further, this idea that there is always something greater and more perfect just beyond our reach. And every time we think we get there, perhaps we're not there. But as far as I can tell, it appears to be a part of every culture, uh, a part of every country. What do you think about that?
1: Oh, I love the way you put it, because really what you said is paradise is unreachable. Mm. And I think visions of paradise, notions of paradise get in our way of it. That if we have too strong a sense of perfection, we can't embrace the imperfect but beautiful world around us, whether we're in Santa Barbara or in Isfahan. And so I almost came to feel that I needed to cleanse my mind of the idea of paradise. You know, everything Mm. we're we're saying um, goes with the fact, I think you and I for many years have spoken about the Dalai Lama together and I'm always struck that this most prominent of religious leaders (laughs) published a book called Beyond Religion because he's seen that religion itself with its competing visions of uh, paradise, has made for divisions across the globe. Re- religion, which should bring us to a greater unity, is sadly often um, the cause of more dissension. I, the central chapter in my book is about Jerusalem, which is a perfect example yeah. of that, a deeply holy place, uh, yet scarred by the fact that people have competing notions of, of paradise or Perfection. Just where I'm sitting now in Japan, if I go to the next town, Kyoto, and I walk into a temple, there's often written on the ground at the entrance to a temple in Japanese characters that mean, look beneath your feet. (laughs) Mm. In other words, as you were saying, don't look out beyond to the future for paradise. It's right here. And that actually embracing the world means recognizing that we have to find our paradise if we're ever going to find it, right here, right now, um, in the midst of real life. And also, I was thinking during the pandemic, in the face of death, Hmm. paradise can't exclude um, death, shadows, imperfection. Interesting.
0: And maybe I'm, I'm going too far out here, but I feel that your life has been very interesting because you have traveled so distinctly well through many cultures but between two very different ones your your parents were teaching at UC Santa Barbara in the 60s and 70s, times of very radical change and ideas of freedom. And at the same time, you were also going back to school to go to very traditional and kind of upper echelon boarding schools in England, where it was more seated in the old world and in tradition and in form and in history. And just knowing a little bit about you, it seems that so much of your life has been trying to grapple between the idea of freedom and newness and land and adventure and one that is also steeped
1: in history and rigor. Do do I have that right? Um, You have that absolutely perfectly. Yes. And, and therefore uh, the challenge, I'm trying to reconcile the distant past, which is what I grew up in, with in England uh, and the future tense, which is Mm. what I associate with, with California. Um, So Exactly, as you said. And I think in England, I was really being schooled in irony and, and detachment. Ah. Uh, uh-huh. And I feel that California is the, the spiritual home of idealism and, and hope. So it was about balancing uh, hope and reality. You know, just this morning, in fact, I read um, a wonderful sentence from Hannah Arendt, mm. who said that um, freedom only has meaning if you know you're subject to reality. So that's a complicated notion, but I think in the old world, in England where I grew up, and uh, in Japan where I currently live, there's a sense that you have to begin with reality and slowly try to refine and improve it to get closer to the world you want. Whereas I think in California, with its vast open horizons and its freedom from the past, we often start with our dreams and then try to, to build foundations under them. But it's, as you said, it's a very different notion of, uh, of freedom. And I suppose maybe the older I get, the more I see that even cultures with walls around them, like the England where I grew up or the, um, the Japan where I live, are the places we have to live. I suppose a different way of putting it is that I think of the US as a place based on the pursuit of happiness. And I think of Japan as the place based on the Buddhist notion of the reality of suffering. Mm. And I remember during the pandemic, I think my friends and neighbors in California were were very shocked because we're pursuing happiness and we never imagined that life was going to throw us such a curveball. Where my neighbors here in Japan continued life just as they would normally, because they expect it to be difficult and they don't expect life to be filled with anything other mm. than challenge and difficulty, but they know that nonetheless you can find your happiness and maybe your paradise in the midst of that Mm. challenge. So I suppose ultimately it's the difference between an old culture and and a new one. And when I was growing up in England, California was bewitching to me and all my friends because it was the home of um, the youth revolution, of possibility, uh, where you could leave your past behind and make yourself something new. Now as I get older, (laughs) I probably gravitate more towards the old cultures because... They know how to deal with, with suffering and death. They've been you know, Japan for fourteen hundred years has been dealing with forest with fires and typhoons and warfare, and so it's not upended when reality makes a house call.
0: Mm. So perhaps in a place like Japan where you say the the kind of the Buddhist truth of suffering is just more interwoven into the way people live their lives and there yeah just as as you mentioned there's not this sense of catastrophe when something tends to go wrong a pandemic or something like that right
1: Exactly. I mean, the expectations are very different. And this is one reason why, of course, so many Japanese love to be in in California. Um, Expectations here are pitched rather low and then people are pleasantly surprised when things go well. And California is the great sort of resurgence uh, of hope. But as you know, I am really a central character in this book of mine mm. is, is the Dalai Lama. And um, I, I always remember how when I went to this uh, temple-filled mountain with him uh, in in Japan, as described in the book, he addressed us in, in the autumn as the dusk was falling, and he said, death is a part of life, and you can't really appreciate life unless you acknowledge that. I mean, I think of the Dalai Lama as one of the world's great Realists. And in that sense, he's a spokesman for the Buddhist tradition and, and, and the Old World tradition. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I've, I've been thinking how I love the fact that this program is called Life Examined because of the costs of the unexamined life. But I was also thinking that the pandemic was a time for examining life, but also for considering death. And I was thinking the unexamined life is not really worth living, but probably the unconsidered death is not worth having. In other words, we can't really appreciate uh, life unless we see that it has limits and unless we think about death. And the thought of death, in my case, moves me to enjoy my life much more, not to take anything for granted, and to remember I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and therefore let me make the most of this moment when I get a chance to talk to Jonathan and the sun is shining and right now I I feel healthy. Mm,
0: No, I I love that perspective and and that truth and it's just funny as, as we're sitting here having this conversation, you know, I my two loves are California and the oceans and Colorado and the mountains and I seem to ping back and forth and as I sit here in California and I see the beautiful golden light on the hills and the ocean is nearby, I kind of yearn for the mountains of Colorado, but then I get to the mountains of Colorado and I yearn for the oceans of California. And it's as if, it's as if I'm always looking for a paradise that's separated by about a thousand miles. And it's so hard to be in the one where I am at the moment. And I wonder if that's something that you have found true about our idea of paradise or of happiness. And that once again, it's a place that just seems to always be elusive to wherever we are.
1: Yes. and Well, I'm amused also by the fact that Boulder and Santa Barbara are places that almost anyone would consider paradise. But when you're in one, you're thinking of the other. So I think I addressed that question in my life fairly early on, because I remember when I was living in New York City in my 20s when I brought out my first book, and uh, it was just the life I might have dreamed of. Endlessly interesting, I could travel around the world, fascinating friends and colleagues. But I was always thinking, what would it be like to to live in Japan? Mm. Or what would it be like maybe to to leave for Thailand or Brazil or somewhere else? And the minute I moved to Japan when I was 30 years old, I never started thinking what would it be like to be back in New York City or (laughs) London or Uh Shanghai or anywhere. I'd found my home. And um, again, there's a... There's a re- the temple in the north of Kyoto called Ryoanji, which is famous for that uh, rock garden that everybody's seen pictured with 15 different rocks, and you sit there and you contemplate the enigma of these rocks. But if you walk around that temple, on the next side, there's a little water basin, just a simple stone water basin, and there's one character on each side of it. And when you put the characters together, it says, what I have is all I need. And so I suppose even in my 20s, I sensed that the only paradise I could find would be a calm that I found within, a readiness to live with the joys and sorrows of the world. Mm. And it had nothing to do with externals, though I was happier in Japan and more content in Japan than in New York City, but only with the eye I brought to them. All What I have is all I need. In other words, it has to do with accepting the terms of life and um, and not looking for something better because life is going to defeat all of us. (laughs) An argument with reality is an argument I'm going to lose. Mm. So I have to um, be aware that uh, I can't live forever and the things I love can't live forever either. And within that, find whatever is going to give me joy.
0: Mm. I love that because I think you and I would both acknowledge that the great contemplative traditions have many unifying principles, but one is that we live in a world that is that is defined by constant change. And that I think that when we imagine a paradise, we almost imagine it to be a fixed notion of perfection, something that one can step into and it will not change because everything else is changing around us but perhaps the thing we have access to is something more internal, a quietness or a peace, which we do have access to, almost not dependent on our surroundings. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Exactly. Um, That's perfect. The Sufis, the Islamic mystics say, only that which cannot be lost in a shipwreck is yours. Mm. And like most people, I experienced that. As you know, I lost my house in a forest fire in California. I lost everything. In the world in terms of material possessions, but I didn't lose the books I loved. I didn't lose my memories. I didn't lose my wife and mother happily. And so moments like A Forest Fire are a very good time, sort of pandemic, for remembering what do you really have and what is it that's going to sustain you given that potentially uh you could lose all of that and i loved what you said about the contemplative traditions because literally as we're speaking today as i sit this morning in japan i'm completing my next book which is a complement to this book which covers many travels and the next book is about the 31 years i've spent with a group of benedictine monks in um Big Sur, and it speaks exactly to what you were saying, because the reason I keep going to this thousand-year-old order overlooking the Big Sur coastline is in a world of constant flux, it speaks for such continuity and such steadiness. And yet, just this morning, I was recalling that that fragile little monastery in the hills of Big Sur is always being menaced by forest (laughs) fires. It's always being cut off from the road by winter storms. Um, The monks in their 80s are are dying quite regularly. And so just as you said, it is a kind of paradise for me, but it's a paradise in a world of flux. And initially I thought it's so wonderful to find this place, it's always there, even as the rest of the world is changing. But of course, it isn't always there In, in Santa Barbara itself. Whenever the world was getting too much for me, I would just drive 10 minutes uh, up from the mission and I'd go to the beautiful uh, Mount Calvary retreat center, looking out over the ocean, the stillest, calmest, most liberating place I knew. And then in 2008, a fire swept through and that was the end of it. So, so you're right, we can't really hold on to very much except what we have within, which will stay with us, one, ho- one hopes, pretty much until our, our dying Day. and i think you know when i was thinking about paradise and i'm probably not spoiling it for a potential reader here as you know uh, i i end the book in varanasi which is this crazy clamorous yeah. city mm-hmm. uh, in india uh, and i don't include this moment in the book but there was a moment there was one time when i was standing by the the, the gods, the, the river, the Ganges there, uh, dead bodies are floating past, there are flames on both sides in which other bodies are being burned. It's really a kind of psychedelic carnival. Yeah. And by chance, um, two Tibetan monks arrived, one a Tibetan and the other an American, who's the first American to be in charge of a Tibetan monastery in southern India. And they came and they saw this scene of absolute chaos and congestion. And the American monk said, isn't this glorious? This is wonderful. This is what human life is all about. Hmm. And you, know, I'm of Indian descent, but I was kind of freaked out by, by the chaos all around. And I was so moved and humbled by the fact that he, as a Tibetan monk, was able to see paradise is the whole human comedy and tragedy and uh, drama all at once. That that is that is where we find our paradise, not in some perfect monastery up in the clouds, but right in the clamor and and, and madness of Varanasi. Uh, and so I think that one of the things that contemplative traditions give us is liberation from making distinctions between what is sacred and profane. I think most of us think this, this church is, is holy and that shopping mall is the opposite. But I think many a monk including the Dalai Lama, realizes you can find what you need in either of those places. And it's the judging mind that is really keeping us out of paradise. Mm.
0: I And I have to stay with, with Varanasi because I, I, another one of our shared places is that's where I spent quite a bit of time when I was younger. And just like you would wander up and down the Ganges and, and observe, I mean... It is what it is, the burning bodies on the side of the river that turn to ash and the way that the bodies are paraded through the city and the families are gathered around them. And what struck me as such a profound thing about a place like Varanasi is maybe more than any place I've ever seen, that is where you confront death on a level that is just so real and the families confront death on a level that is real. And I think you and I may both agree that in the West and in places like America, where death is something we don't like to look at straight in the eyes and bodies are whisked away very quickly after someone passes, that is the complete opposite of it, is standing there in Varanasi, and that if there was any place where the cycle of life is in front of you, it's there.
1: Would you agree? Oh, beautifully said. Absolutely. And I'm so glad to talk to somebody who, who's been to Varanasi, who's been to Iran and, and knows these places firsthand. I, I so agree with you. And, and in terms of death, I often think uh, you and I and most of the people I know will prepare for a job interview, we will prepare for an exam, we'll maybe even prepare for a first date. But as you said, we're tempted not to prepare for death, though it's the one big, inevitable, essential fact of life. Mm. And to turn one's w- sights away from death leaves one very unprepared when a virus, or a mudslide, or a forest fire um, comes through. And as you said, the, the, the people in India living in the thick of death um, seem to know how to work with it much better than we do sometimes. And I think the thing that really struck me about Varanasi is that that city of death is a city of joy. Mm. Um, and it, it, as it happens I was in India uh, four days ago yeah. and I was staying in a five-star hotel and you've been in India a lot so you can imagine the flush didn't work, the curtains uh, couldn't be pulled <laughs> up so I was in the dark <laughs> the whole time, um, there were no towels in the bathroom, nothing worked. Uh, and that spoke for you know the, the, the mayhem all around. And yet There was nothing dispiriting about uh, the the Bangalore that I saw. In fact, all the people around me, full of energy, cheerfulness, optimism, um, and I think would be ready to to deal with uh, whatever life throws at them. Uh, And so it was a reminder that India can be a very shocking place, as can many of the uh, undeveloped countries on the earth. But it's not a dispiriting place, and it's not one that I come away from with a sense of despair. Actually, I come away from it often, as today, with this sense of optimism. And I think the other good lesson about Varanasi is, you know, because you probably spent more time there than I, is it's so dirty that Mm -hmm. the water in the Ganges is is 3,000 times greater than the maximal fecal chloroform uh, um, bacterial level said to be healthy. It's it's, uh, one of the dirtiest places on Earth. But it's a holy place, that the holy place doesn't have to be impeccable, immaculate, that um, purity and cleanliness aren't always the same thing. So Varanasi wonderfully overturns all our notions. And of course, one of the other lovely things, as you experienced, is just six miles from the chaos of the 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 Ganges and the Burning Bodies is Sarnath, where the Buddha delivered his first discourse. So you've got another beautiful religious tradition 20 minutes away to to learn from.
0: No, of course, you've probably seen similar sites. You stand on the side of the Ganges in, in that water that is so profoundly polluted. There's a young man brushing his teeth with the water, or yes. a baby taking a dip, or clothes so commonly being washed and the towels drying next to the river. So th- it's it's this incredible interplay between what we think of as dirty or cleanliness or holy or profane. It's all there, just floating past everyone.
1: Yes, and 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 uh, cleaning their teeth or drinking the water yeah. with such delight and gratitude too. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yes. And they've, they've transcended our notions of what we should or shouldn't do. And this is, they're, they're being baptized in, in, a, in a Hindu context in that water.
0: If you're just joining us, my guest is Pico Iyer, and we're discussing his new book, The Half Known Life. So, how has travel changed your life? Chime in on our Facebook page, where we have a goal of getting to 1,000 members, and we are almost there, and we'd love your support. We'll be back with part two of Pico Iyer after this short break. This is Life Examined. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard renowned travel writer and author Pico Iyer refer to his experiences in Varanasi, India as, quote, a psychedelic carnival, both a city of death and a city of joy. So how does travel also remind us about how much we don't know? As we rejoin the conversation, Iyer explains the title of his book, A Half-Known Life, and the influence of American writers Thoreau, Emily Dickinson, and Herman Melville. Let's jump back in. There's a lot of other, I think, really important writers who uh, interweave through this book, and one of whom I know you love to and always return to is an American who is Thoreau. And I wonder what you would say about Thoreau and maybe Thoreau's visions of paradise or what he has seen in the world as it relates to paradise.
1: Yes. Well, I think Thoreau has said, heaven is under our feet. (laughs) Mm,
0: Just like the Japanese Uh, temple or
1: something like that. You're exactly right. He's... uh, articulating exactly the same vision we would find here and and i love the way he he would say i have traveled widely in concord in other words Mm. he didn't need to go around the world to find his paradise he found it right there um, within sight of his little town with the trains barreling through 20 times a day right past his his little cabin and he realized he had everything he needed there which was sunlight some degree of quiet what you call the cycle of the seasons um the beauty of nature Uh, his books and himself uh i i love his saying it matters not how far you go the further commonly the worse. What matters is how alive you are. And I think Thoreau, as much as anyone, realized that travel is not about going far, it's about going deep. And it's really about trying to keep al- keep inside you that sense of aliveness, which you can have in your home sometimes more than when you travel to Tibet or or Bali. So yes, Thoreau sits at the center of this book, especially when I'm sitting in the Himalayas in Ladakh. And I think the other presence I feel is at the center of this book is that great contemplative Thomas Merton, Mm. uh, the Cistercian monk. And I think one reason I have a lot of Thomas Merton and the Dalai Lama is that Merton, after 27 years in a Trappist monastery, had his great moment of peace and realization visiting the Buddhas in, in Sri Lanka. And having just had a three wonderful conversations with the Dalai Lama, and meanwhile the Dalai Lama, though so grounded in Buddhism, gives talks on the Gospels and calls himself a defender of Islam and really is keen to learn from every other tradition, consults rabbis on how to sustain a, a tradition outside its homeland. And so one of the things that was animating this book for me is that we all can feel the world is ever more connected and it's ever more divided? Mm. And how do we begin to get past those divisions? And so the fact of a Catholic monk being instructed and inspired by a Buddha and a Buddhist teacher being moved by all the other traditions. And the very climax of my book almost is a Zen teacher uh, who thinks about the two figures who are crucified next to Jesus and who told his students in the US this remarkable sentence, in your struggle, is your paradise, um, hmm. and who found paradise in the fact of those people being crucified, which is, so again, it's this very Zen notion that paradise doesn't exist in the never-never or in the place where we're sitting and listening to the beautiful ladies playing harps. It's in our struggle, in the midst of our our suffering but in every case each of those three religious teachers was drawing from a tradition not his own as was the tibetan monk i met in in varanasi when he was finding so much to celebrate in this hindu holy city and i get so much hope from that when it's ever easier to be entrenched within our own traditions or our own little communities that's an interesting concept
0: i mean i think making some type of a connection between paradise and struggle and you know, I I think when we reflect on the most poignant moments of our life, they're generally not, oh, it was just a nice sunny day and I was sitting outside. But they tend to be something that's a little bit perhaps a little tougher, more complex, um, more gritty, more uh, alive in a way, right? I mean, there, there, there is this, there's a this strange thing where I think we're, we seek a kind of, I don't know, just placid existence, but that's not what memories or life or meaning is often filled with.
1: I love that. Exactly. Exactly so. Some intuition in us that's maybe wiser than we are um, knows that the deepest experiences um, come out of life. And I think, in fact, many people have had their deepest experiences at a time or after a time of of great suffering because you know there are no shortcuts then and there are Mm. no guarantees. But whatever... Hope or content you can come up with is an earned one. You know, I remember. So the day before my house burnt down, uh, I might have been very, very happy and having much to celebrate. The month after it burnt down, when I found things to celebrate and champion, and there were still many, that felt a deeper happiness because it it had been through the fire. It it mm. had it, it had been hardened by by reality, and I, I could feel that much um, more strongly about it. So. I love your perception, and I think, as you say, everybody would agree to it. And the other thing I think we would all agree to is those really piercing, poignant moments, are also ones we can't explain to ourselves. And that's why I call this book the half-known life, because I think our lives are determined almost entirely by things we can't put words to and, and can't begin to explain, whether it's falling in love or moments of faith or prayer or terror as a forest fire is roaring towards you or wonder, as you as you said, in the central square in Isfahan. We, we don't know exactly what's going on there and, and we don't need to know. But those are the moments that really pierce us. And if somebody asks us for a uh, a synopsis or an explanation we can 't really give it as you as you said so perfectly about the mosques it 's beyond words, mm. and I think the richest moments in life are are beyond words, so on the surface level, the half known world or the half known life is a description of how, in the age of information, we actually don 't know so much about Iran or North Korea or Kashmir or other places I describe in the book. but the deeper sense is the half known is that realm uh, of, of things we 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 just sense or intuit, but uh are much bigger than we can ever be, and mm. that's what's really shaping us in in every way
0: How do you feel your relationship is now to travel i mean i you're the most well traveled person I think I know you've been to just, just dozens and dozens of incredible places and do you still have the same flame within you to go explore and to see? Or do you feel that you are in a different phase of life now where that's maybe not as as important?
1: I think I still have um, the capacity to be moved and surprised and transported. Just as the pandemic was beginning, I was in Antarctica. And I'm not hmm. as sensitive to nature as many of my friends. But it was so beyond anything I'd seen or imagined the majestic silence, the thousand shades of silver, the, the penguins bustling about their business. I might have been a teenager again. I was so amazed by it. So that capacity always exists, although you're right that I've been lucky enough to, to see many of the places I've longed to see, such as Iran. And when I think of Thoreau, you know, he said, I measure distance inward. And I think that's how I am. In other words, I know that you don't have to go far. To be transformed travel is a shortcut to suddenly being overturned and opened up but you can experience that in your hometown or even within your home. So uh, it's not an essential part of your life, though. If somebody were to tell me I could go to Saudi Arabia next week, I'd be on the next, pl- <laughs> next plane because I, I, I'm fascinated by it, and I don't feel I can know very much about it at a distance.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It's just such an interesting moment we live in where I think, you know, my generation, let's say the millennials, value something that I think is very rich, which is experiences, and and therefore can become almost a a competition to acquire as many firsthand experiences as one can. And it's such a delicious temptation to want to live life that way. Who doesn't, right? But we're now sitting in in a different world and where that may not be possible or best thing for everybody.
1: Exactly. And I, th- I think I always feel that travel shouldn't be about consumerism. It should be about curiosity and curiosity doesn't need to travel very far in order to be satisfied. And when you use the word delicious, I was thinking that food has really become an essential part of people's travels, maybe mm. because you can't taste sushi online <laughs> yet. You have to go to that little ten seat bar in the anonymous subway station in Tokyo. So many of the millennials I know travel great distances to have special meals. Um, and i 'm not sure if, as you said if that 's the greatest use of time or money i 'm happier if they travel those same distances first to understand about that other culture, but secondly, maybe to give something to that other culture or to give something to people back home once they come back from it you know the the one just one justification for going to Iran, for example, is that you and I can come back to California and Tell our friends if they have any interest, this is the Iran we saw, and it's not always exactly what you're going to see on CNN.
0: As we begin to slowly wrap up here, I I do want to return to the title and something you talked about other a few minutes ago, and the title again being The Half-Known Life. And if I have this right, if I read it right in the book, I mean, that's actually a phrase that you found
1: in Melville, another great American writer. Is that right? Yes. Thank you. Yes, Melville and Emily Dickinson haunt this this Uh, book and Melville the Great Traveler and Emily Dickinson the one who traveled amazingly well never leaving her room Mm. but yes so uh, you know Melville as as we all know was so unnerved by his travels especially his inner travels trying to find (laughs) trying to find God um, Mm. that he said that um, we should more or less stay at home and if you take off and go into the world beware because you'll never come back or you will not come back the same person But um, there's a lot of Melville in in this book traveling again and again around the Holy Land, as I did Jerusalem, uh, thinking about cemeteries. And uh, I just like the sense that Melville, almost more than anyone, could never come to a conclusion. Uh, And I'm grateful Mm. for that. He knew that life, or he found, that life was not about finding answers, but trying to live in a state of answerlessness. And he was always raging to to come to terms with God or to find out the mysteries of the universe, but of course he couldn't. And um, on the one hand, that's a warning, as you were saying earlier, probably we can't find perfection if we're hoping to go across the world and come upon it in Tibet. On the other hand, um, it's it's a useful reminder of all these things so much larger uh, than we are. And I think of our lives these days almost like a little tent up in the Himalayas Uh, and we have our flashlights and maybe the tent is illuminated but we're surrounded by this vast darkness all around us and above and that darkness is is the half-known life, it's the half-known world and I think it's good to be humbled by Mm. experience and, and, and by the world and I think sometimes the big danger in our current world is people saying I know it all or I know better than you And I think if we were more ready to say, I don't know, and I don't have a clue what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, and uh, life is far wiser than we are, all of us would be better off. I think the more we can acknowledge how much lies beyond our grasp, um, the richer we are. And I think that's why we turn to religious figures, whether it's Pope Francis or the Dalai Lama or Thoreau in his way. They all have a due deference before the vastness of the world that they can't hope to Mm. Control,
0: And while I have no grasp of the amount of wisdom that they have, Orca, it was just interesting, you know, just this morning I was sitting with a friend and he was asking me, what's it like to be able to speak to all these interesting people on different topics every week that are filled, like you, with wisdom and ideas? And I said to him, you know it just leaves me with more questions and more confusion about what's real. I could give you so many convincing arguments about why one should live a life of grit or why one should live a life of cutting losses quickly and starting over again, or of why certain principles are right and some are wrong. It's this constant influx of ideas and paradox and different ways of thinking and being that it it leaves me full, but it leaves me with very little conclusions, if that makes sense.
1: That's wonderful. I think that's what my book, is really. And at the very beginning, I, I quote Thomas Merton again, really saying that faith is a question uh, more than an answer. And the other part of this, what I loved what you were saying, that you could make an argument for almost anything. But you also told me 10 minutes ago that the moments that really stay with you are beyond any argument, mm. and any thought, and any words. And those are the ones that really you are going to cherish all your life, and probably everybody listening to this conversation has her, her equivalent. So in some ways, arguments are just like froth upon the ocean, <laughs> mm. but, but the real things that we're carrying through life with us are those, just what you said, those piercing moments where we don't have a clue, but we're being deeply affected in many different directions by some experience or wonder or mystery. Mm.
0: I, I, I want to just quickly mention, too, I was very touched when I saw that this book was dedicated to your mother, Nandini Iyer, who died in the last year. And I, I just wonder how much of her spirit—she was an extraordinary mind and teacher and scholar here in Santa Barbara—how much of her was was running through some of these pages, or at least was on your mind as you were putting this book together?
1: So kind of you to, to mention that, Jonathan. And yes, very much uh, on my mind, because really through most of the pandemic, I was sitting in my mother's house in the hills of Santa Barbara and her mind and her body were slowly coming apart. And then she did pass away in July, 2021. And, and so again, that really intensified my sense that if I am to find a paradise, it has to be one that includes death, uh, the mm. paradise in the face of the death of my mother and at some point of me and my wife and everybody I care about. And it can't be one that turns its back on life, at least at least for me. And so my last major narrative book, three years ago, I was writing about and as I was experiencing the death of, of Leonard Cohen. And uh, this book was to some extent very much um, shaped by uh by uh, my writing it <laughs> just a few feet away from where my my poor mother um, was nearing the end, and um, and and it's interesting, I mean it only struck me at the end of the book that the final three chapters well they they're all about graveyards, and they're about mm. passing through graveyards and coming out at the other side in some ways to that Varanasi experience we're describing where you're in the midst of death and yet there's joy and and gratitude uh, all around. Uh, Because the holy mountain where the Dalai Lama was speaking is full of 200,000 graves Mm. and yet there the Dalai Lama was reminding us about confidence and hope in the midst of that. So I think that's the arc of the book, traveling right the way through death and then emerging into some sense of one hopes, calm or gratitude.
0: It's been such a pleasure to have Pico Ayer back on the program with us on Life Examined. The new book is called The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. And I I always feel grateful when we get to spend these hours together. And I wish they were more often. And um, thank you so much for speaking to us from Japan today. Uh, I really appreciate the time.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It's always such a delight. And thank you for all that you bring to our conversations.
0: All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week. Take care.